You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, try to figure out what it means, then talk about it for public consumption. <laughs> not sure if that's... A, Whether we should be allowed to or not. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a great idea, but it's one of the ideas we've had. So, Hey, of all the ideas we've had, this is probably the safest one that we've executed. So, <laughs> I, I will say it's, it's, um, it, it's, so far it's worked out pretty good. I mean... This is what, 167? You know, I don't know. I I just keep trying to stay ahead with the notes. And as long as I can do that, I, I'm good. I let you keep up with the numbering sure. because, you know, it gets sure. crazy around here. We had two trips to the ER this week. That's how crazy it's been. Yeah, well. So. Well, yeah. And speaking speaking of number of episodes and things of that nature, I do want to mention next week, or I guess when this airs, the following Saturday is Christmas. I might actually be at your house visiting family, so we might not have an episode. We might take this weekend off, Christmas weekend off, as like we did Thanksgiving. But if there is one, be surprised. If not, we will be back uh, the following week, I believe. <laughs> I don't have any major plans for New Year's. <laughs> we're getting all kinds of lazy. We took Thanksgiving off. We're taking Christmas off. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, I figure... <laughs> um, you know, if they really miss us, we do have, um, there, there's, there's backlog episodes and I did do a, a, a Hanukkah special the week of right? Thanksgiving. So, you know, I, I didn't leave everyone just completely hanging out there to dry. We'll see. Maybe I'll do a, <laughs> a new year's special. There we go. There we go. <laughs> we'll see what we can come up with. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so. nothing that we have to do a whole lot of prep for because, um, we're going to be probably doing family stuff and presumably you will be too and uh hey now is a great time i mean if you are traveling to to visit family you know you got everyone in the car just you know <laughs> you can introduce other okay. family members to the podcast just start at episode one or actually start at the Captive judges. audience yeah start at the judges series probably the best place that's where i've been telling people to start i feel like that's where we kind of hit our groove so uh i yeah and the judges series was just, I mean, that was just cool for me. I learned so much going through that. And that's part of why I like doing this. It gives me a great excuse and to study more and to buy more books. Sure. So no, I'm, I'm learning <laughs> a lot from it too. I really enjoy it. So, um, but that being said, um, I think we should get on with the study because we are here to learn. Yep. Right. Uh, yeah, supposedly. So now this is this is a cool chapter. Uh, I was actually I enjoyed going through this chapter a lot. This is chapter uh, twenty of Second Samuel. We're just going to pick up in the first verse. We kind of started last week to get into it, but we didn't get very far. So we're just going to pick it up, and we're going to talk about some of the stuff that's hidden in this chapter. These are my favorite chapters where you get these overlaps between things that have happened and things that will happen, and it all kind of comes together in this little story that kind of gives you this glimmer of what could be. And it helps you understand the various stories and their different aspects because you're reading them together. And this is why it's so important to read your Bible as a whole. Mm -hmm. you, you can't just pick out pretty verses and put them on your wall and call yourself a Christian. 
I, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying you're not a Christian if you do that. I'm just saying that whenever you truly love what you believe and you love the Lord and you want to know more about him, you need to take advantage of everything he's given you. And yes. there's been a lot of time and effort put into preserving this book. So, well, there's a lot of time and effort put into to studying it too. And there was mm-hmm. one, one of the things that, you know, in, in one of the things I was writing about worship, uh, there was, I can't remember exactly what brought it up, but I was, was writing about how, you know, we have a lot of worship songs that talk about wanting to know God better and wanting to, mm-hmm. to, to be closer to him. Um, and people just singing that over and over and over, but they don't ever crack a Bible. And it's like no amount of telling God you want to know him better is going to help you know him better. You know, you have to study. Well, you know, how would that work with your spouse? I want to know you better, but I'm never going to spend time with you. I'm never going to actually have a conversation with you. So if it doesn't work in your human relationship, you can kind of take it for granted that it's not going to work in your spiritual relationship. So, you know, spend some time, get to, get to know what God has revealed. Cause I mean, the digger, the, the, the deeper you dig, uh, the better and the the more fascinating this gets. And if you're ever bored with the Bible, it means it's time to move your study to that next level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it's time to to take it to that up a notch because I did, you know, I've gone through this times where I have been totally bored with the Bible. Uh, you know, there's just nothing left to see here. I'm so familiar with it. And then somebody reintroduced, you know, new concepts, new ideas, and it changed the way I read it. And Mm -hmm. because of that change in me, now I was able to go, wait a minute, there's so much more here. And I've come to the place where I realized no matter how deep I go, there's always going to be another level that I could go into. A lot of it's just going to depend on my discipline and my effort that I'm willing to put into it. And, you know, and some of it's going to be how far can my faith stretch? At what point does my Bible push me so far that I'm like, oh, I can't go there? Mm-hmm. Well, and, well, and and you you mentioned discipline, and there is, there is an element of discipline to that. But mm-hmm. anymore, with the level of scholarship being put out on podcasts, and not not just ours, mm-hmm. um, right? It, there's to actually study. It doesn't even take that much serious discipline. Uh, anymore. I mean, to, to learn and, and study seriously on like a lay level. Now, if you want to get mm-hmm. into, you know, of course, into, <laughs> into the academic levels, then you're going to have to do a lot more reading and a lot, have a lot more discipline. But where we are now, if, if you just want to have a really good working knowledge of how the Bible is put together, really, it's just simple as finding the good teachers and listening to them because their, their stuff's yeah. not, you know, carefully concealed in books anymore. <laughs> well, you know, honestly, if um, the the level that we have now available to the public was available before I went to seminary, I may not have gone to seminary because I, I could have scratched that itch other ways. And, you know, and, uh, seminary is not for everyone, but, you know, if you got the call, go for it. Absolutely. But if not, then just take advantage of the sources that are out there because the people who do this love God's word and they really want to take you deeper. They want to take you to a different place with studying it. So, but anyway, now that we've kind of uh, gone on and on about that, uh, let's get into second Samuel. We're in chapter 20. Um, David has just returned to Jerusalem. This is after Joab has killed Absalom. And we're seeing how tenuous David's hold on the kingdom really is. 
because this is not, you know, some kind of fail-proof, um, he's got the kingdom, he's, he is the king, nobody's uh, disputing that. It's completely the opposite. He's having to really make certain that he has a hold of everything he can hold onto. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we saw Shimmy reminded us that um, the tribe of Benjamins and even some others still think that Saul was the rightful king and David somehow uh, took over the kingship when he shouldn't have. Joab proved how tenuous David's control over the army was at this point because, you know, he said, hey, I can take him with you if you don't shape up. Um, the dispute between Judah and the ten tribes show you that this, there's this ever-widening schism between Judah and the other tribes. And so the, the, that schism actually is going to come into major play by the time we get to Solomon's sons and we have the divided kingdom. But it starts here with David, and it started with D- David's divided house. And everything that happened in David's uh, personal life is going to play out on a national level. And it's going to take it a few generations, but we're going to get there. So um, basically what this chapter does, it kind of tells us the unavoidable consequences of all of these combined circumstances. And so as we get into here, we, we need to be remembering a couple of things. We need to remember that David is not living in a a nicely patterned political arrangement. He is a king over a nation that was just a few decades before this looked like judges. Mm -hmm. David grew up with the judges still having a major impact with the mindsets of those people still shaping and forming the country. So we need to keep that in mind. You know, this isn't European royal courts. This isn't, you know, a nice palace on a hillside. This is still a group of very tribal-minded people who are making sure that they are looking out for their own families. They aren't thinking nationally at this point. We're going to, you know, we can get into whether thinking nationally is a good thing or a bad thing as we move forward. Right now, the point is they're not unified, and because they're not unified, they're a very difficult people to rule and to govern. And David has just fumbled the ball big time. Because he singled out Judah and said, hey, why are you not supporting me? And the other 10 tribes, you know, there's 11. We're going to talk about, we're just talking about Judah and the other 10. We're going to talk about them in a minute. But he, when David singled out Judah and says, hey, why aren't you supporting me? And the other 10 tribes get offended. We, we can really just see that wedge being driven home to really start tearing this kingdom apart. So. We're going to pick up in verse one. It said, now there happened to be a uh, worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So we get a few pertinent details about this guy. Number one, he's an Ish Bilal. Sorry, Ish Bilal. We've heard this term before. Usually it is B'nai Bilal. It's the, the sons of worthlessness. Um, this is the um, one of the oldest titles for personified evil, mm-hmm. even before Satan. Uh, we've talked about this before. Uh, Marion Brand's podcast, uh, no association with Raven Creek, but uh, understanding sin and evil. Look it up; it's great. It's from a Jewish perspective, so you know, be aware of that. But as far as the history and the culture, wonderful information. And I think we can kind of see. You got something? No. <laughs> well, I was I was curious. Uh, you said Ishbia. Are you going going more into that title? Good. Well, 
what I wanted to point out is we can see the morphology of how this phrase is being used because we go from sons of Leal being kind of used in contrast to sons of God. Right. And now we, we have just an Ish Leal that the man is worthless. The, that the ma- Yeah, it's like a man of Leal. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that's the man of Leal. He he has um Leal's really become the byword at this point. It's not being used as a kind of signifier of his descent or lineage or, or even a people group. It's now referring to just someone who is worthless. So we aren't talking like Leal as personified now. We're talking about it as Leal as equality. And this is where most Bible scholars, when they see the term, they immediately land on this kind of interpretation where we're talking about a quality, not a quantity. You know, it, it's, it's that, that idea that someone can embody Leal as an individual and in doing so become worthless. And so we're already starting to see kind of those dividing lines of how you become a son of God versus becoming a son of Leal. And you know, remember, Israel has been adopted. They, they are the sons of God. They are the supernatural creation. And where Belial was something that seemed to have like a counterpart where you could also decide to be one of the sons of Belial. Mm-hmm. And now we're, we're moving away from, you know, kind of that supernatural worldview where we do have these supernatural beings that inhabit. And um, I mean, it's still there, but it's not as, as vivid as it was presented in Genesis and as it was presented earlier in Judges even. As as the society is becoming more civilized, now the language is softening to reflect that civilized, softening society, and so we're we're seeing kind of this this change. And when cultures change, the meaning of words change, and the way we use words change. And I think this is a good point where we can see that happening with the term "bleal." Mm-hmm. And I think we need to be careful when we read this, especially in Judges in Genesis, that. We don't contextualize it from this point in time. We actually look at the events that led to the uses in those previous books. And that's where we had, you know, Genesis 6 with the sons of God. And this is where we, we have uh, Benabliol being powerful forces who actually enact evil on the earth. And so we're still seeing this guy, Shiva, he's going to enact evil and therefore become worthless. And he's embodying who those people were. If everybody's following me, because I mean, it makes sense in my head. I've got this wonderful yeah. little timeline that if I could just show you, it would be so much simpler. But uh, so that's that's who well, the first thing we find out about him, even before we find out his name. You know, there's this worthless man whose name is Shiva. Um, Shiva, son of Bikri, he's a Benjaminite. So we're establish him, establishing him as a member of Saul's tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, not a descendant of Saul, so not necessarily having claim to the throne like Mephibosheth might have if he was, wasn't crippled, but he's part of the family. And so there's some loyalty there just because of familial lines. Uh, and we're given a little teaser about what we should be thinking back on. And we should be thinking back on who else used a trumpet, who else used a shofar. And we're going to get into why that was important in a little bit, but I want you to kind of be thinking of other people who've done this. Now, Shiva makes this very formulaic um, pronouncement. We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. If this 
feels familiar, it's probably because you're thinking of another verse that follows the same pattern. And it's a verse that we talk about a lot. It's Deuteronomy 32, 9. But the Lord's portion is his people and Jacob his allotted heritage. So we've got these very similar ideas. We actually have the same words in the Hebrew. Uh, the ESV, again, I've got it right because they didn't, they weren't consistent with their translation. Each time that heritage, that the kala is a possession, it's a present, it's a gift. It's used in both verses across the board. There is no distinction. It's the same word. And we have this possession inheritance connection several times in the Bible. Uh, it first showed up in Genesis 31, 14, and that's when Rachel and Leah, they're talking to Jacob. And Jacob had said, hey, let's, let's get out of here. And uh, they said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? The, you know, they've, they've acknowledged that their, um, their dad, um, oh my goodness, his name just went out of my head, uh, Laban, uh, Laban has basically disinherited them, and they're the daughters, the sons mm -hmm. are going to get it all. So they're saying, hey, there's nothing here for us. Let's get out of here. The intimate ties of family have been broken. Mm. I, I don't, there's nothing here for us because the family isn't family anymore. They said we belong with you, so we'll follow you is basically what's going on. We have several other um, verses connecting these two concepts, and they're used actually kind of in a negative fashion because it's about the Levites, and the Levites have no inheritance. They have no portion, and they have no portion and inheritance because they are solely reliant on God, and so they don't get cities. They don't get lands when they move into Canaan, and then we also have it in Job also in a negative fashion talking about the inheritance and the portion of the wicked from the God, so the, this phrase really is denoting those things that God gives us, uh, whether it be family, it, it's a place in the new promised land, whether it is um, some kind of, of judgment for evil acts. But the, the idea that what Shiva's saying here is God neither decreed David to be king, nor is, the king, nor is he a king by familial connection. Mm -hmm. So, and we're going to back this up. So I'm not just going to throw this out there and leave you going, well, you know, what, where did she come up with this? We're going to talk about how the, the story actually demonstrates this. Um, you know, the idea that David had no claim to rule over Israel it, it is valid. I mean, if you just want to go from a strictly outsider looking in, who is David to say he can't be king? Uh, we. We want to look back and go, well, it's a done deal. God said it, so it, it, obviously it has to be king. But, I mean, you can look back at even our presidential elections over the past few decades, and how many times does somebody in the church, several somebodies in the church, say this candidate is God's candidate, we need to support him, and everybody else is going, what, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. This guy couldn't possibly be God's candidate. Now, how right or wrong such a pronouncement might be, I'm not even going to get into, but we still have the same mindset. You can't just say somebody was chosen by God. And especially in this day and age where, you know, who saw the anointing? Only the people who were there. There's no cameras. There's no videotape. You know, you have to accept the word of somebody that you hope knows what they're talking about. And so Judah can claim David as a king. Absolutely. Because he's part of the family, mm -hmm. you know? And so when you've got that family, connection, that's a little easier to accept. And then the whole of Israel is 
having to accept that Judah knows what they're talking about, but we've already seen, even as far back as, uh, as judges, when we did that study there, Israel isn't always convinced Judah is the, the right p- tribe to lead. Mm. And we also got to remember, too, if you go back to Genesis where, where Jacob is blessing his sons, yes, he does say that the rod and scepter will never depart from Judah. But there's also some ambiguity in how he blesses Benjamin that makes it seem like Benjamin's going to be the one who gets to t- claim the crown. So there's a lot of reasons for people to have doubts, and I think we forget that. But the, the rabbis, um, really, they harp on the fact that this is Shiva saying, David doesn't have a right to lead because God doesn't have a right to lead. I mean, they take it as a direct insult against God himself. And so, Nathan, oh my goodness, I just realized I'm not recording. You're not? My voice, my voice is not coming through on... No, you're uh, fine. I'll, I'll just pull it off the video feed. You'll be fine. Uh, okay, we'll just, I don't know why I've done it's... that before. It's fine. Okay. All right, good. Okay, so... I, I've got the, backups. <laughs> yay. Okay. So, all right. So, basically, what they're saying is that Shiva's words are a negation of Deuteronomy 32.9. And so to accept David's rule is the same as accepting God's rule. So what he's, he's basically not just saying that David doesn't have a right to rule, but that God doesn't have a right to rule. And this is why everybody needs to go back to their own tents, every man back to their own tents. Now, what's crazy about this is when we've read this phrase before, it's always been the idea that they're fleeing from battle. This is cowards on the run. This is not, um, you know, this isn't something you want to tell people to do. And what in the world's going on here that he would think that, um, you know, telling everybody to run away from David is the right move. So from context, we have to think there's, he's saying something different. And, you know, from the context is Shiva's leading a revolt. You need an army to, to have a revolt. And so any attempt to overthrow the king means you've got to have men who are willing to fight on your side. And so what we have is this, this phrase that we really don't know how to parse just in and of itself. We've got to look at the context. Now, Rashi believes that this is basically Shiva saying, hey, everybody into their own tents. Get away from David. You need to follow me and make me king, which is one interpretation. However, Arbanel and Zamora actually believe this. This is a call for every man to rule in his own tent. And to rule in his own tent is a call to return to that tribal independence, to go back to how things were in the, in the days of the judges. And so we need to remember what the days of the judges were like. I mean, the days of the judges were brutal. And so the, the idea that David being the Messiah, David being the one to, to bring unity to, so that the nation of Israel could accomplish his goal is something that's kind of um, not been fully absorbed by the masses yet. The, the country hasn't got a full understanding of what that means. And so we've come full circle from Israel first demanding, hey, we need a king. Give us a king, even though God seemed kind of hesitant. Samuel was certainly against the idea. And now they're saying, 
we don't like this. We want to go back to what we had. We, we want to go back to being able to, to rule in our own houses without a king because they're beginning to realize that Samuel's warning about a king was true. Mm. He, and, you know, a king causes problems. But there's also another possibility of what's going on here. Because there is um, what they call a scribal emendation. And this is a practice in which scribes go back and they say, hey, this is um, kind of blasphemous. This, this isn't something that we really want to say. And even though it might be correct, the wording's just a little too harsh. And so um, the scribes sometimes soften the language. Uh, one of the, the great examples of this is um, people curse God in the Bible, but the Bible will read that people are blessing God. So you change the curse to blessing so that you, you, you don't write something offensive as a scribe, but then the readers don't read something that might bring them to a blasphemous act or even contemplating blasphemy. Hmm. So, yeah, it, it, it's kind of interesting because um, whether or not you believe this happens kind of depends on how well preserved you think the word is, the word of God is. In this case, the argument is that um, instead of every man going back to their own tents, it's every man go back to their own gods. And the only difference is in the words is you, you switch two letters and the, the vowel pointing's a little different. And of course, the vowels don't count because the vowels aren't in our oldest manuscripts. Switching two letters it can happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just be honest. How many times have I written something and flipped two letters around and changed the meaning? So there's some debate. It's really not that big of a deal. But if, if it is every man to his own gods, then basically we're saying that Shiva is calling for people not just to reject the rule of David, but the rule of God and to replace their worship of God with these household gods. And we know that household gods were common in that day and age. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the very act of returning to their own tents actually cuts people off from Jerusalem. This is significant because now this is where the Ark of the Covenant is. We don't have the temple yet. But the Ark of the Covenant's there, so how are you going to fulfill the, the Torah and the observations of the sacrifices you should make if you can't go to Jerusalem to perform those functions? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And <clears throat> I am a—plus, then you've got that added little connection of the Ishbelial, and so the Ishbelial calling for people to leave God, leave the place where God is manifest— and to return to a place where they can do as they like, all of a sudden you have the story that's as old as Genesis, and it, it's as as current as the latest trending headlines. I mean, you know, if you if you repackage this, you know, be true to yourself. Don't deny who you are. Uh, no one has the right to define you. These are all things that we hear, and this is essentially what Shiva is saying. Mm-hmm. Go back to your house. Be who you're going to be. You don't have to have a king to to tell you what you need to do. You can just do what you like. Yeah. It's like, I can't remember who it was, but I saw some, uh, like popular figure in the progressive movement, uh, and she tweeted, uh, anyone who, anyone who tells you to deny yourself is from Satan. And yeah, like I, 
I think you're not. And what's really funny about that is this is one of those people who tends to be like, well, Jesus never addressed X, Y, or Z. So why are we so upset about it? But then you're actually going to just completely disregard something Jesus directly actually said. said. So yeah, that was, yeah. 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 Well, I, I thought that was kind of a, uh, kind of funny ties in pretty well to what we're talking about here. Yeah, there, there's this thing where we have decided that it is horrible to confront sin, where confronting sin, confronting anything that goes against God's word isn't being true to God, it's being mean to people. And, you know, you really have to look at it and consider the fact that what rules we do have, number one, they're supposed to inform us on how to have a relationship. So when mm-hmm. you break those rules and you break relationship, you're cutting people off from God. And there's this this other part of the idea that goes, well, you know, if I'm cut off from God, no big deal, because he's just a big meanie, right? Well, that's why your view of God has to be, he's the source of life. Mm-hmm. When you start to view God as the source and the sustainer of all life, now being connected to him becomes vital. It's important. It's something that you need. And so it's not just about following rules. It's about sustaining and supporting your own life. Mm-hmm. And it, it's one of those things that's um, it's very selfish, even though it's not selfish. And so it, it's kind of that balance there. But, you know, it, we, we need to, to remember that God isn't asking us to deny ourselves because he just doesn't want us to have any fun. That was what our parents did. But God tells us to deny ourselves because he wants to bring us into something fuller, something better that can only happen in his presence. And so if we're believers, then we want to be in his presence. And that's, I I don't understand why people have a hard time with that. If you want to be in my presence, there's certain things you're, you're not going to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're not going to snort Coke in my presence. That's when I leave, or that's when I ask you to leave. It's simple. Right. And if we, if we can say these things as one human being to another, then why do we want to deny God that right? And so anyway, one of my little hobby horses that just, because it just irritates me. I, I, it's so irritating that people think that we should treat God with less honor and respect than we expect to be treated with by our friends. Yep. So yep. anyway, verse two. Uh, so all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Shiva, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from, jo- from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So um, despite the fact that Judah had been kind of, you know, on the fence about bringing David back, uh, now they're saying, hey, we're firmly behind David. You know, it's one of those things, you know, you can kind of be wishy-washy and then when somebody hit you with a little opposition, it's the best idea ever. I mean, it's human nature. Um, you know, Absalom's revolt really had divided the king, uh, the tribe. That's one of the things that we do need to remember, because Absalom was also part of the tribe of Judah. That's, you know, he was David's son. And so what Sheba's revolt does, it really does solidify Judah as a tribe, because now they have a common enemy. Right. And so there's good and bad because Judah is going to be the ruling tribe. We need them together. We need them to be functioning as, as a unit. But it had the other effect of further separating Judah 
from the rest of the nation. So, you know, it's kind of that double-edged sword there. Um, you know, on one side, it's a really great thing. And from on the other side, it's, it's not. But we've also got something else going on here too, because if you notice, we've been talking about Judah and 10 tribes. And I said, we're going to explain this. The writer is being very intentional because he's getting ready to make a, a major point. We have to go back to the previous chapter and remember who's with David. You know, we've been told Judah's with David from Jordan to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So David hasn't entered into the city yet. And that trip from Jordan to Jerusalem, we got to remember Shimmy's with him, Ziva's with him, and all of his sons and his, his servants, but also a thousand men from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Shiva is a Benjaminite, so we already know he's on the other side. So Benjamin has been split. Mm -hmm. there, there's this internal struggle within the tribe itself, and as such, has negated itself as a tribe within the conflict. Individuals can take a stand within the tribe, but the tribe itself is not on one side or the other. It's very much fractured at this point. And so the writer just doesn't even include Benjamin because Benjamin it has no say as a tribe. So that's what we're, we're seeing here. The only players that matter is Judah because it's completely united and the 10 tribes because they're completely united together. And so this is, this is significant because we're getting, getting ready to go into something very clever. Verse three, we go from Shiva and his revolt to this really odd verse that the writer just seems to have tossed in here because he didn't have any place better to put it. It says, and David came to his house in Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines who he had left to the care for the house, who he left to care for the house, and put them in the house under guard, and provided for them, but did not go into them, for so they were shut up until the day of their death, as if in widowhood. So, no way around this. This is just a weird verse to put here. Mm -hmm. um, you know why? pause in the middle of the story of a revolt to tell you about these 10 women that obviously David wasn't really all that concerned with at um, other points. So to take a note from Dr. Heiser's page, if it's weird, it's important. So we're going to kind of have to work through this in a couple of ways. So first of all, I'm going to look at Bergen says Bergen, who, uh, you know, we, we've been using his commentary. He's very favorable. Uh, he's as favorable as possible to David when going through Samuel. And he, he sees this as, you know, David being kind, David being generous. Uh, you know, he's offering a place for these women to live, giving them food, security. They, they aren't going to have to want for anything. And, you know, in choosing not to have sex with them, David is quote unquote being prudent. Uh, he, so he, uh, Bergen, defends this position by citing Leviticus, Leviticus 18.15, which commands that a father shall not see the nakedness of his son, which is his son's wife. And, you know, I think this is flawed. I, I have to say, I think he's wrong here. Um, because, number one, it makes the presumption that Absalom married the women. That he couldn't have. The women were already married to David. There was no decree of divorce. There was, um, yes, I know they're concubines, but remember concubines were wives. They just didn't have the same familial uh, provisions in place that a wife would have had. Mm -hmm. And it's never specified in the text that Absalom married them. It just says he humiliated them. He attacked them in broad daylight. 
And, you know, this, this was an act of violence, what he did to them, what Absalom did to them. And there's nothing in the Torah that prevents David from reclaiming a wife who has been attacked and raped. There, there, there's absolutely no reason for him not to take them back based on the Torah. So the only thing that could have prevented David from reclaiming them as wives is if they had married Absalom. Again, you're having to read into the text. I, I don't see it. Mm-hmm. And uh, if they had agreed to marry Absalom, now they're adulteresses. And because they're an adulteress, the proper response isn't to give them a cushy place to live. It's to kill them, is to have them stoned. Right. And so the fact that David doesn't have them executed seems to suggest he doesn't think that they were willing participants. He seems to, it seems to me that he thinks that they were victim. And for this reason, because David doesn't follow any of the religious prescriptions and how to handle the situation. We have to think that David's actions were not dictated by religion. More likely, they were dictated by culture, in which case culture would have been, um, you know, a king doesn't cohabit with a woman who's been taken by his competitor. You just don't do it. Because remember, if you take the place of the king in the bed, you can take his place anywhere. That that's what's being uh, told to to the masses. Okay, but there's the question of what's being told here because it's not about the fate of the women. If you remember back on most of your Bible stories, women who are attacked this way, we aren't really told about their fate. We we just they just fade from the story. They are catalyst. They are um, the reason that, you know, the, the nation's politics are shaped a certain way, why wars are fought and what have you. But we don't really get told what happens to them afterwards. I mean, we can think of Dina, the women at Shiloh. We can talk about Tamar. We, we don't get that insight. So the first thing that jumps out to me is, again, another completed circle. Because what happens to these women is exactly the same as what happened to Michal, Saul's daughter. David ran off, left Michal at the home. Saul gave her to somebody else. And then we saw it again with Abigail, where David left Abigail at Ziklag. The uh, Amalekites came in. They took her and possibly, most probably, because at that point in time, this was the nature of warfare, she was raped too. And then... Now the pattern is continuing. And the other thing about Michal is David never took her back as a wife completely. She lived out her days and had no children. We're told that specifically. And now David isn't reclaiming his place as a husband with them. So we have this cycle continuing, but we still have it escalating in David's own life. And so that's a really interesting thing that the writer is stopping to point this out to us at this point at this time, at this juncture in the story. And we've got to remember that the purpose of the text, and I think this is where the answer lies, the purpose of the text is not to give us a chronological history. The purpose of the text is to teach us a theological truth. So the the story of David, as told by the writer Samuel, not so much Chronicles, but Samuel, is to show us that while David is God's chosen Messiah in the moment, he fails to embody what the Messiah should be. You know, David's that glimmer of hope that 
he kind of opens the eyes of the people, the possibilities. You don't have to live in these, you know, tribal factions where everybody's warring and struggling to stay alive and the Philistines can come in and the Moabites can come in. We're going to be together. We can actually defend each other. We can take care of each other as a nation. And David does do that. I mean, he absolutely accomplishes those goals. But David doesn't, he, he doesn't reverse the circumstances as Hannah told us. And, you know, when we look at the book of Judges and, you know, it, we're presented with um, this group of men who have this long history of failure, uh, morally, ethically, religiously, you know, and they, they culminate in, of course, Samson. And Samson's entire existence is just one big cautionary tale about a man being led around by his um, desires and his temper. Mm. And then the book concludes with that, that brutal gang rape, death, and dismemberment of the concubine of the Levite. And then we've got the nationally sanctioned rape of hundreds of women. And so we, we have that, that cycle starting there where it's okay to attack women and to abuse women. And what happens? It, it just continues to escalate. It continues to grow as people become more and more jaded to what God has called them to do. David's supposed to step in and stop all this. He's supposed to put an end to the, the, the cycle. But the problem is when we get to David, we aren't there. I mean, there's enough grace, and I think this is very important, there's enough grace in the culture at this time that there is outrage. We obviously see that. Uh, there's, there's problems with sexual sins. I mean, Ahithophel was, was just so angry about what happened to his granddaughter. Um, Absalom was disgusted at what David allowed to happen to Tamar. So we are seeing a move away from the, the values that had been a part of the time of the judges. But the, the progress is slow. It, it's not what it should be. It's not the radical change that it should have been. And, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't be outraged by, by David's behavior. I mean, David um, is very much a product of his time, and we need to keep that in mind. David's very much a product of his culture. But the, the outrage we feel is um, it's because we have stories like this. That's what we need to remember. This is not God condoning what David did. There's so many things David did that God never condones. And so when we have stories like this, these are what teach us how to be outraged. This is why, it, as far as cultures that have been influenced by Christianity, the treatment of women has traditionally and historically been better than any other religion from ancient times. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if we can sit here today, and we can say bosses, pastors, uh, church elders, coaches cannot use their positions of power and authority to abuse the women under them, then we get that principle because of what God's revealed, most notably in the life of David himself. And so, you know, God consistently shows us that he is outraged and he, he doesn't like these things happening any more than we do. And, and he demonstrates this because even though he says David is a man after his own heart, he does not prevent the consequences from being enacted. 
he still brings consequences to David's house and upon David as an individual because David failed to uphold the, the standard that Hannah set for the Messiah. And so the, the writer Samuel's been very, very clever here, and he has created this mirror image, and what's happening in the nation is happening in David's house, and he ties it together because we had the 10 tribes mm-hmm. who are opposing David that David will never really gain full control of. His family is not going to rule as a unified whole. That I mean, Solomon's going to have him for a very brief period of time, but even then there's going to be some, some problems within that um, rule mm-hmm. that's going to result in the kingdom being fractured under Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And so what's happening in the nation is happening in David's house. David will never have his house returned to the proper order. It's never going to be completely reestablished again. He lost it. Mm-hmm. And he lost it because of his own sin, his own hubris, and the fact that he was unwilling to not just take care of the nation the way he was supposed to and oppose Absalom. He was unwilling to defend the weakest and the, the most helpless under his command. Mm-hmm. And when he didn't take care of them, he lost them. And so what's happening on both fronts, the national and in his home, uh, they're, they're completely tied together. Why? Because in God's kingdom, you don't get to bifurcate yourself into this is my political sphere or my business sphere, and this is who I am on a personal level. They come together, they merge to create a full person. You cannot have one thing happening in your secular life and another thing happening in your sacred life. It has to come together. It has to play out together. Mm-hmm. So we see that very much with, with, um, with David's rule. And we've got to think about who David is at this point in time, because David is, you know, he's no longer the celebrated king. He isn't remembered as the general who led Israel out and brought them back in. You know, that's the beginning of 2 Samuel, where the the tribal leaders wanted him to rule because why? He was a trusted general. Now he's the king who stands at the gates. He's the king who stands over the gates in Wales because his his son and the leader of a revolt died. Uh, He isn't the giant killer anymore. Uh, He's not the man who ran before the ark. He, he's the man who, who surrendered because his own son said, hey, I don't like what my dad did. He's never going to regain that status that he once held in the eyes of the nation. Yeah, he's still king, but he's a defeated king. Mm-hmm. He's the king who ran. And he's the, he only rules because somebody else was brave enough to kill his enemy. And that's a really important point. If Joab had not stepped up to kill Absalom, David never would have returned to Jerusalem. And his rule in Israel isn't out of respect and honor. It's by default. It's, it's, you know, we had him before. He seemed to do okay. He handled the Philistines. Yeah, Absalom ran him out of town, but Absalom's dead. And I think that's the only guy who could, who could really defeat David. So we'll let him come back. And, you know, David, I I think we forget that David does fall so much in the eyes of the nation. And, you know, he's never going to, he's never going to have that same level of trust and authority, even within his own home. I mean, do you really think that any of his wives after this happened felt safe? Right. And 
This might explain why Bathsheba makes some of the moves she does later on. So, you know, we really... Yeah, that gets real interesting. It, it does. It does. And, um, man, she... I, I love... I, I don't want to get too far afield with it, but I love the fact that with her story, she goes from victim to... I mean, she is in control. She, she becomes a Gibora. She's a, she's a <laughs> mighty woman. I, that's, I, I think that's inspiring for so many reasons. But, um, you know, everything around David is going to reflect his, his, his divided state of being. And that really is what leads to the divide of the nation. And that's going to play into to so much. And we already talked about on a previous episode with um, Ziva and Mephibosheth, how that was cited as the, um, as the beginning point of that divided nation. I think it began before there, but I think that's kind of like the, you know, the final tap of the uh, hammer on the nail. What am I trying to say? <laughs> I got you. But, but you know, th- we're supposed to feel tension, and that's what the writer is trying to do. He's trying to create the, this tension because mm-hmm. on one hand, David is that glimmer of hope of what the Messiah can be. He did bring real change. He did totally reset the climate and the culture of his country because now people were able to say there is order. I, I can actually go to the, the tabernacle and not be afraid of the, the priest's sons attacking me. Mm. I, I can actually live in my home, hopefully, and not have to worry about another tribe swooping in to steal my daughters. Uh, you know, we, we have some good things that have happened. On the other hand, you know, we, we are supposed to, to grieve the fact that the, our hero's flaw. He's got clay feet. And so in him, we see both this, this beginning of a possibility, but we also are supposed to anticipate the, the ultimate Messiah who's going to make Hannah's words reality. Because mm-hmm. David doesn't do that. David fails to live up to the standard that was set. And who set the standard? It was Hannah. And so when Hannah, I mean, well, it's God through Hannah, but Hannah was the one who, who spoke those words. And, you know, David is at odds with himself, and he, he's very divided. And I think the thing that we need to bear in mind is, yes, David is divided. Yes, there's difficulty with what he's doing. His deeds scare us. But, you know, how many of us, if we got very honest, would say, you know, we wouldn't be any better than David if we had the power and the authority and the opportunities that he did? Mm-hmm. And so what we need to remember is, the, the call for adoption, the, the fact that God chose David and, and brought him to this place of honor is still in place. The adoption was never rejected. It was not negated by any of David's sins. God's gifts are irrevocable. Paul says that. But God never removes the consequences of the accident. Uh, uh, sorry, not accidents, actions. And because they weren't accidents, they were, they were choices that David made all the way along, allowing culture rather than God's word to dictate mm-hmm. his choices. And so in David, we have both this warning and this hope. If this flawed man, this man who, who messed so many things up, could bring such great and good changes to the nation of Israel on the heels of judges, and that's what you've got to remember, it's on the heels of judges. And yeah, we had all of 1 Samuel to talk about Saul's reign. But Saul's reign didn't really change anything. Saul really wasn't a king. Mm-hmm. He was more of a judge. He, it, yes, he's called king. Yes, he's anointed king. 
But when you get down to it, Saul's legacy never continued. So technically, he never really rose to that point in position of a true king. Mm -hmm. And so David makes all these great changes that we we don't see. We, we don't understand because we don't live in a culture where people are winnowing grain in a grape press because you're scared of getting caught. This is not happening on David's day. So much has changed. But the, the fact that he, all these things do happen should inspire us because if we can begin here with David, then how much more? that great rabbinic question, how much more are things going to change under the rule of the true and ultimate Messiah, Jesus? Mm-hmm. And, and so that's where the real hope is. If a flawed human being can do this much, how much more? Uh, and I, I don't think we can even begin to answer that question. I mean, and we can talk about aspects, but if you want to get very real into the nitty gritty, that, that's going to be mind blowing in ways that uh, man, our human, our human brains are going to fry if we actually take the time to think about all the ways that our lives and, and our, our existence is going to change. Yeah, and, and I like that too, uh, not just in the messiahship question of things, but just God in and of himself, because it's kind of interesting, you know, the, the advancements we've had in science and our ability to observe the universe and and see what's out there. Uh, there's so many people who want to take that as, um, there's no way that any kind of being could, could be in charge of all these things. And whereas instead of going, well, we've, we've, we've changed the world or we can see the world in ways that God didn't talk about in his book, or we can, you know, <laughs> you know, we've, we've made all these great advancements and in, in, instead of taking it as an invitation to uh, imagine what more there could be, it's they see that as a way that to, they run up against the limits of their own imaginations as for what God could be. And mm-hmm. um, so that's, that's kind of an interesting uh, way of looking at things. Well, it, I, I do. I think that anytime we come up against something that we go, oh, well, God couldn't possibly that that's our moment that we need to stop and reassess. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in any time we get to that place where we say, well, God couldn't reassess mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we, we don't get to define what God can and cannot do. Uh, only God gets to make that. And those are things that he chooses. Those are limitations he places on himself. And so, and he doesn't do a lot of that. And I think we need to, to be very careful. And I think, the fact that God is an infinite being, we need these little, I call them handholds, you know, it's where you can look at what David is and what David manages to accomplish. And that computes in our human brains. It's small enough for us to, to really wrap our minds around, at least begin to. And so if we have that as kind of a launching point to, to look at something greater and to look at something bigger than what we had imagined up to this point, now our imaginations can be inspired. And that's, that's the really cool part. And I think that's one of the reasons we were talking at the beginning of the episode, why it's so important to study scripture and, and to go back to these stories and read and see what God is doing. It's because it's to inspire us to think about God in bigger ways than we would on our own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we uh, have this really bad habit of thinking that God can give us the parking space at the grocery store 
but he can't deal with our sin. Uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I spent tons of years in uh, commission sales, and one of the phrases that we used quite often when when trying to. Uh, Nathan, hold on one second. Hey, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> okay, well, that's probably a good spot for us to, to wrap up. Okay. Uh, well, we could just... repairmen. <laughs> okay. Let me finish this thought real quick, and then uh, okay. we'll we'll wrap up. Um, but one of the things that, um, yeah, I know you had a repairman just walk in, but give me one second. <laughs> I one of the things okay. that in sales is we told the sales guys, don't sell out of your own wallet. Like you might not be able to afford the the uh, that guitar someone came in to buy, but the person mm. who came in the door might be able to do that. And I think that's kind of what we do when we we look at the way God handles things. So. That's a that's a really good point. Um, I hadn't heard that one. Yeah. So anyway, I'm gonna go on ahead and like I said, it's kind of a cheesy <laughs> analogy, but Emily, I'm gonna let you go on ahead and go. I'll just wrap up here and uh, just uh, send me the stuff, and we'll <laughs> talk with you in a little while. <laughs> okay. So um, to everyone else, uh, thank you for joining us. Sorry about the awkward ending. Uh, you know, life does happen. Um, things get a little weird, and uh, that's okay. But one of the things that I do want to say to everyone before I leave is thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, um, you know, we don't really ask for a whole lot here, but I would like uh, to make an appeal for for a little bit of help. If you don't mind liking, sharing, hitting the subscribe button if you haven't already, recommend it to a friend, and that is probably the biggest help you can give to us. Um, I always forget to ask for help at the end of shows, and I don't know why. But Raven Creek SC, if you want the show notes, Raven Creek SC on all the social media, um, or RavenCreekSC.com is the website. And uh, sorry for the awkward ending. Uh, life's kind of crazy and busy right now, and uh, we will see you next time. Hopefully, we appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.